Okay, uh, this is going to be the first lecture about 20th century China. So to start off, uh, we're going to think a little bit about the end of the Qing Dynasty. Uh, though the Qing Dynasty had flirted with several different reform schemes in the second half of the 19th century, by the turn of the century, the Great Manchu Empire was on the brink of collapse. For over a half century, China had existed in a constant state of crisis, or perhaps more aptly had lived through a series of whack-a-mole crises of all shapes, sizes, and types. But in 1900, the Manchurian homeland was occupied by Russia and Japan. The state treasury's coffers were empty, and China had mortgaged its future to foreign nations in unequal treaties and reparations. Rebellions erupted frequently around the Qing territory, and that territory itself had been cut, in, cut into by concessions uh, to the foreign powers. Now, despite all this, the Qing dynasty, which had ruled an expanding China for several centuries before these new reversals of fortune, proved exceedingly resilient. Much as it had four years earlier, the Qing dynasty in 1900 not only managed to survive, but displayed a new spurt of vigor, a revival of relatively strong central leadership and competent administration. A new round of reforms, including the 1901 Reform and Penitential Edicts, indicated that the court was ready to lead the nation in a program of changes far more profound than any attempted previously. Subjects were given the opportunity to propose reforms themselves, and some were indeed implemented. Between 1906 and 1908, the Empress Dowager also dispatched several groups of high-ranking officials to the U.S., Europe, and Japan to learn their best governmental practices. And it's worth noting the inclusion of Japan was important, not only because it suggested that China was prepared to learn from what had been its cultural and political inferior throughout recorded history, but also because what was to be learned included constitutional government. When Japan's constitutional monarchy defeated Russia's czarist autocracy in 1905, as John Fairbank wrote, constitutionalism seemed to have proved its efficacy as a basis for unity between rulers and ruled in a national effort. The so-called new policies of this late Qing reform period, some of which were proposed only and, uh, and some of which were actually implemented, uh, included efforts to slim down the administrative system, to transform subjects into stakeholders in a new nation of popular participation, to develop Chinese commerce and industry, especially by expanding the nation's inadequate rail network, to restructure the military, to radically reform education, to establish a constitutional and parliamentary government, to carry out, to carry out fiscal restructuring, to help the impoverished court shoulder the burden of these wide-ranging and ambitious reforms, and a major commitment to the eradication of opium use, etc. Reform efforts were encouraged by the Japanese victory in the Russo-Japanese War, which many in China took as a sign that China too could become one of the great global powers, if it could only get its act together and follow a path of modernization and reform, similar to Japan's. In 1905, the Empress Dowager approved sending a mission abroad to study constitutional forms of government, though upon its return in 1906, the commission recommended the highly conservative Japanese model, which retained the monarchy and had it bestow the constitution to subjects rather than citizens 
Uh, that's an important distinction in the Japanese context. In 1907, plans for national and provisional assemblies were announced, with a full constitution to be in place by 1917. In 1909, assemblies met in each province and sent representatives to Beijing. Although less than 1% of the population had been allowed to vote, the elections generated excitement about participatory government. In 1910, the Provisional National Assembly met. 100 members had been selected by the provincial assemblies, and another 100 appointed by the court. However, anti-Manchu feelings exploded in May 1911, when the court announced the formation of a cabinet with eight Manchu, one Mongol, and only four Chinese members. Education is illustrative of some of the most vigorous and ambitious of these policies, and also some of their inherent problems, and that's in part because education is where some of the most dramatic reforms were enacted. Central to educational reform was the absolutely radical abolition of the civil service exam and the creation of Western-style schools across the Qing Empire. By 1907, there were nearly 36,000 modern schools in China. That number topped 87,000 by the time the dynasty fell just a few years later, in 1911. These schools served 2.9 million students, about 141,000 of whom were girls. The area of educational reform was also, therefore, a key site for the changing status of women in modern China, though that change was painfully slow and piecemeal. It was also a key site for importing Japanese models. Modern curricula were based on Japan's, and the entire structure of modern education was lifted straight from Japan, where, like many other modern innovations, it had already been translated into something more amenable to existing cultural structures and mores. Moreover, Japan's success with educational modernization was not only undeniable, but it stood in stark and humiliating contrast to the post-opium war state of China. A newspaper published by Chinese expat students studying in Japan remarked bitterly, quote, Japanese schools are as numerous as our opium dens, Japanese students as numerous as our opium addicts. Simultaneously, the first decade of the 20th century was the last decade of the Qing dynasty. The Manchu-led empire's moral authority had been greatly weakened in the latter half of the 19th century. Reforms were ambitious, but destabilizing, and put the already cash-strapped government deeper into foreign debt, as the court was forced to finance some of its programs with additional loans from Western and now newly Japanese banks. So the new schools were understaffed. After all, where do the teachers come from to instruct students in a brand new system they themselves never learned it and don't understand? The anti-opium campaigns angered opium farmers. Irrigation works went unmaintained. Protests and revolts and strikes increased. Society was increasingly polarized. Economic growth was underwhelming. And there was significant and widespread resistance to modernization projects. Despite the vigor of many of these attempted reforms, some scholars have argued that the reforms were tainted by the inherent conservatism demanded by maintaining the Manchu Empire itself, and that the Qing dynasty survived only because there was no regime in sight to replace it. Additionally, anti-foreign sentiment remained high. 
An important example of this is the rights recovery movement, an attempt to float domestic bonds in order to buy back railroad rights from foreign investors and restore sovereign control over Chinese uh, transportation. This became a focal point for nationalists, but not one that attracted the investment capital necessary for the kind of successes participants envisioned. In 1910, however, the Qing court decided to nationalize the entire rail system, enraging both local stakeholders and those who believed that control should be at the provincial rather than national level. This sparked another round of protests and demonstrations. During the decade leading to the fall of the centuries-old Manchu regime, as the Qing edged toward constitutional reform and tried to strengthen their control over the new army and railways, dissent in China continued to grow. As Spence wrote, having uh, having begun to taste the excitement of new opportunities, assemblymen, overseas students, women, merchants, urban workers, and troops in the new army all pushed local authorities and the central government to respond more forcefully to their calls for reform. Moreover, modern nationalism gave rise to a new anti-Manchu ethnic movement, whose fiery anger is well expressed in a 1903 call for revolution written by a 19-year-old called Zhou Rong, who advocated the creation of a revolutionary army to, quote, wipe out the five million barbarian Manchus. It was a popular expression of the idea held by some since at least the late 19th century, that the root of China's weakness was in its domination by the alien Manchu race, uh, of course, in scare quotes. The imported language of social Darwinism, with its scientific rhetoric of the survival of the fittest, was popularly applied to the international sphere as well, depicting countries in desperate competition for survival. It seemed to men like Zhou to describe China's plot, uh, plight, excuse me, accurately. This kind of racially charged anti-Manchu rhetoric was also appealing to Sun Yat-sen, the revolutionary who would eventually be mythologized as the founding figure of the Chinese Republic, which replaces uh, the Qing dynasty. Sun was an unusual figure among the many revolutionaries of the time. He was dapper, widely traveled, well-educated, and a cosmopolitan and also a womanizer who had grown up in Hawaii. He spoke English. He had converted to Christianity while studying medicine in Hong Kong and did most of his plotting in Japan. Unsurprisingly, he was quite popular in the Western press. He also spent time in England, where he learned about the shortcomings of the West and also bolstered his revolutionary street cred by being detained in the Chinese embassy for nearly a week. He began to feel that perhaps China could skip ahead of the West by going directly to a more progressive form of government. In Japan, in 1905, some Japanese helped him to join forces with the more radical student revolutionaries to form the Revolutionary Alliance. In the succeeding years, Sun Yat-sen developed his Three People's Principles. Nationalism, which opposed both rule by Manchus and domination by foreign powers democracy, which to him meant elections and a constitution, and the quote-unquote people's livelihood, a vague sort of socialism with equalization of landholdings and curbs on capital. What Sun seemed to be reaching for in his third principle was some expression of sympathy for the plight of ordinary Chinese. 
he wanted to signal that in his version, in his version of Republican Revolution, the Nationalist Party would strive to equalize things through taxation and some kind of a government land back, buyback program. It was a noble idea that had very little prospect of ever being put into practice. In the midst of this, the emperor died in 1908, following a, uh, followed a suspicious day later by the Empress Dowager. The next in line for the throne was a three-year-old boy, whose regents were ineffectual and whose inability to manage the situation more or less dashed hopes for a constitutional monarchy on the Japanese or really any other model. Dissatisfaction and dissent became revolution in 1911, triggered by what might otherwise have been an unremarkable, accidental explosion, if not for the volatile stew of reform and counter-reform, foreign incursion and new nationalism, etc. When the Qing dynasty fell, China began both a new modern life as a republic and a painful process of disintegration into warring factions. Chaos followed as nationalists on the one side and communists on the other struggled for hegemony right up to and through, in fact, the escalation of war with Japan in summer 1937. So let's talk about that revolution uh, and the explosion that seems to have triggered it. The explosion that brought down the dynasty occurred in the headquarters of a revolutionary group in the three-city area, uh, which is called Wuhan and which we all know about today in inland Hubei province. Students, many of whom had become radical nationalists while studying abroad in Japan, had formed such revolutionary groups, uh, had formed revolutionary groups, such as the one in Wuhan. Membership in these groups had grown by design to include soldiers. When investigators of the explosion uncovered membership registers in the destroyed building's remains, the revolutionaries panicked. It was now or never, so they chose now. The bomb exploded October 9th, 1911. By October 12th, the Tri-City area belonged to the rebels. Units of the new modern army with troops on, whose membership, uh, on those membership roles supported this uprising and helped to overpower the cities. The revolutionaries also sent telegraphs requesting similar action through China. A month and a half later, 16 provinces had succeeded, had seceded, in other words, left the Qing dynasty. In response, the Manchu government brought back former governor Yuan Shikai from an earlier forced retirement. Yuan, who had emerged after 1901 as the most powerful general in China, serving as both commander of the Northern Army and head of the Baoding Military Academy, had been dismissed by the boy emperor's regents just a few years earlier, and he owed no particular loyalty to the Manchu court. He was supposed to crush the rebellion. Instead, he negotiated a settlement that resulted in the demolition of the Qing Empire and its replacement by a republic, with Yuan himself as its new president. So, unlike the Bourbons in France or the Romanovs in Russia, the Manchus were deposed but were neither beheaded nor exiled. In a sense, their fate was much more like the post-1945 fate of the Japanese imperial family than it was like that of the European monarchs. The state of China, as the last Manchu emperor abdicated in February 1912, bore many parallels to China's position when the last Ming emperor hanged himself in April 1644. Finances were a mess. Dissatisfaction was widespread. Natural and man-made disasters had left much of the countryside in ruins. 
foreign pressure was immense, and even the domestic forces pulling China apart were stronger than those holding it together. Yuan Shikai was the wrong leader for this time. His ascension to power was neither straightforward nor a long-term success. He was preceded by provisional president Sun Yat-sen, previously, as we've said, a revolutionary activist in exile who returned to China in late 1911. When Sun Yat-sen assumed the presidency in January 1912, he was still too politically weak, uh, and also militarily weak, to completely oust the Qing. He called on Yuan Shikai for help, offering to relinquish the presidency to him in exchange for pushing the Manchus out for good. China now had both a Republican president and a Manchu emperor, as Spence wrote, an impasse that required some sort of resolution. Resolution, short-lived and partial though it was, came with a negotiated abdication in February 1912. The boy emperor, Puyi, was given a stipend and a promise that Manchu ancestral temples would be unharmed. He was also allowed to live, to continue to live, in the Forbidden City. Sun Yat-sen was shut out of the ensuing power structure, in which Yuan Shikai was authorized to establish a provisional government. With this, more than two millennia of China's imperial history were brought to a close. And with almost no experience whatsoever in the arts and institutions of self-government, the Chinese people were presented with the option of devising their own future in a watchful and dangerous world. In any case, Yuan Shikai promptly began acting as a dictator. Within a year of the end of the empire, China was back on a path of autocratic rule. He negotiated a $100 million loan from a foreign consortium without consulting the National Assembly. He had Song Ren, leader of the new Nationalist Party, assassinated when the party won enough votes for Song to become leader of the new parliament in 1913. Yuan Shikai also crushed the half-dozen provinces that seceded in protest and declared that he would take the position of emperor in 1916. In the interim, he banned the National Party, now under Sun Yat-sen his erstwhile ally. In 1914, Yuan Shikai dissolved the county assemblies that, as one historian noted with irony, threatened to create a pluralistic, semi-representative polity, not under central control. The controversial move to take the throne was only forestalled by Yuan Shikai's own death in June of that year. Now, to be fair to him, Yuan Shikai did undertake some progressive projects before his death, including extending elementary education, suppressing opium cultivation, and promoting judicial reform, if only because he believed that at least the appearance of an independent judiciary was crucial to ending extraterritoriality. Spence wrote, to develop the economy, Yuan ordered attempts at raising crop yields through irrigation and flood control, developing new strains of livestock, promoting afforestation, and speeding distribution of goods through low-interest loans and reduced railway freight rates. The national currency currency was centralized, minting, controlled, and millions of depreciated banknotes in the provinces recalled. As Fairbanks noted, the Republic began its history with certain attributes of liberalism, an uncontrolled press, elected assemblies representing the local elite in many counties, prefectures, and provinces and a national parliament organized mainly by the newly created Nationalist Party. But Yuan Shikai's brief reign was tumultuous, fractious, authoritarian, and ultimately destructive, and what followed 
was a period of warlordism. The overthrow of the Qing dynasty and the almost immediate collapse of an effective successor exerted powerful centrifugal force, in other words, force pulling apart Chinese society. It ushered in a time of competing regional powers, including commanders in Yuan's old army, governors of provinces, local strongmen, and gangsters, each of whom built up competing individual power bases around the former Qing Empire. In this fragmented and competitive atmosphere, not only did powerful local warlords wage destructive wars in the north, but foreign influence in the margins were unchecked. Japan dominated Manchuria, Britain, Tibet, and Russia, Mongolia. The warlords allowed infrastructure to crumble and did little to help China strengthen and modernize. If anything, the opposite was true. They were as exploitative and destructive, perhaps even more so, than the foreigners. Their armies lived off the land, unfortunately for the people. To buy weapons and supplies for their own wars, the warlords instituted all sorts of new taxes and forced peasants to grow opium as a cash crop. They caused destruction through neglect as well. For example, they allowed the dikes of the Yellow River to deteriorate, leading to catastrophic floods. It's noteworthy that the two men who would emerge as China's most influential political figures in the coming decades were just coming into adulthood as the Qing Empire fell and the chaos of the early republics set in. Mao Zedong was born into a peasant family in rural Hunan in 1893, and his great adversary, Chiang Kai-shek, was born four years later to a salt merchant near the treaty port of Ningbo, south of Shanghai. The chaotic and destructive early Republican period led to the rise of Chiang Kai-shek's National Party, the Kuomintang, or KMT, and the Communist Party that would eventually be helmed by Mao, and also to the internecine rivalry between these two factions. In part because the ensuing decade, because the ensuing decade or so of warlordism, 1916 to 1927, was by definition a nadir of centripetal state power, a low point for the sort of coherence of the state. It was a highly productive and creative time, a time of considerable achievement along cultural, social, and economic lines. On the other hand, for the mass of the people, particularly in the countryside, life went on, much as before, even if recurrent civil wars, large and small, instilled a new level of violence. The empire was gone, but the system which emerged to replace it was weak and did not connect with most of the population. Moreover, China was under increasing pressure from Japan as the First World War distracted the Western colonial powers. With the North Atlantic nations too busy experimenting with ever more brutally industrialized and efficient mass murder, not to mention trench foot, famine, oh, and mustard gas, etc., Japan saw an opportunity to fill both political and economic vacuums in Asia. We'll discuss the 21 demands of, Japan, of January 1915 in more detail elsewhere in a lecture on Japan. But suffice it to say for now that most of these demands by Japan to China were concerned with securing economic privileges for Japan uh, and for its industries in various regions around China. Others confirmed Japan's position in Shandong, and the fifth group of demands, the most controversial, would have effectively made China into a protectorate of Japan by requiring Japanese advisors to be assigned over key organs of the Chinese government, even the police and also by giving Japan enormous power to shape Chinese politics. 
Japan, which had hidden this last group of demands from its allies before 1915, eventually dropped them in the face of Chinese and international protest. The economically and politically weak and relatively unpopular government of Yonshikai, already beset by an array of domestic challenges, found it impossible to fully resist either the Japanese demands or the more general expansion of Japanese economic interests in northern China, which had already been underway since the end of the Russo-Japanese War in 1905. He was forced to accept the first four groups of Japanese demands, securing enormous economic privileges for Japanese businesses in the Northeast. When Yuan lost his life to Uremia in 1916, the government was turned over to his reluctant vice president, who was even weaker than Yuan had been. Only a, half year, only a year later, he had to fend off an attempted coup d'etat by Zhang Shun, a true believer in the Qing, who marched on Beijing and declared the abdicated boy emperor, Puyi, who was then 11, restored to the throne. Although this Chinese restoration was ultimately a failure, it did succeed in completely destroying the illusion of any remaining central power in the government. Fenby summarized the subsequent political implosion of China with utter exasperation. He wrote, Between 1916 and 1928, there were 26 prime ministers and nine changes of head of state. Parliament was feeble, devalued, and corrupt. Regional, potentate, regional potentates withheld tax revenue on a massive scale. In 1926, only a quarter of the salt levy reached Beijing. Central laws and regulations were ignored. In other words, the abortive coup had offered a green light to local strongmen, and these local strongmen expanded their power bases at the expense of a strong, unified center. And this was uh, followed by an era of uh, warlordism. So let's talk about that uh, and its uh, sort of culmination in the so in the so-called uh, May Fourth Movement. Chaos and strife overtook China and ruled for more than a decade. Violently opposed forces pulled China in multiple directions. Among the most important of these were the warlords. They acted as kind of feudal lords of individual so uh, sovereign domains. And the intellectual and cultural forces uh, that were unleashed by the May 4th movement are also extremely important uh, in our understanding of the history here. So the so-called warlords who dominated the next decade of Chinese history were a diverse group, from brutally violent thugs to educated republicanists. They controlled areas of land from a few villages to a full province. They were funded by mechanisms as simple as literal highway robbery, and as complex as the opium trade and full-fledged systems of taxation. In fact, they taxed everything, from night soil to prostitution, to railway freight, to salt, to land. A survey in the mid-1920s reported 673 different land taxes. Some collected up to 36 years in advance. Some applied retrospectively. Warlords extorted loans from banks and protection money from the rail companies. Some worked with foreigners, others were xenophobes. Yan Shishan, the warlord of Shanxi, uh, proclaimed that his system of rule was the ideal combination of, quote, militarism, nationalism, anarchism, democracy, capitalism, communism, individualism, imperialism, universalism, paternalism, and utopianism. Zhang Zuolin, known as the Old Marshal, 
his son was the young marshal, owned the world's largest pool. Excuse me, not pool, pearl. Uh, he squandered a million dollars in a single night of gambling, and he bought arms and hired mercenaries from around the world, especially Russia, to help control a fiefdom in the Northeast as large as France and Germany combined. Estimates put the number of troops commanded by China's warlords at one and a half million by the mid-1920s. These warlords made life abysmal for the populaces they ruled, extracting anything and everything possible. The resident warlords were bad enough. Itinerant warlords with no ties to the land, people, or their futures were even worse. A contemporary account from Shandong recorded that not only have arson, theft, and rape occurred everywhere, as if wild beasts were on the prowl, but murders and kidnappings are performed in broad daylight. Peasants in the same locale are pillaged two or three times by outsiders. Bandits and warlord factions abscond with their chickens and dogs. The people are without houses, without food, and their plight has become extremely miserable. No matter how much time elapses, the same conditions continue to persist. Despite the fragmentation of China, U.S. and Japanese pressure, as well as a massive loan from Tokyo, persuaded the government to enter World War I against Germany. China had its own interests in reclaiming the German concessions in Shandong, while Japan was jockeying with Germany in that same area and desired Chinese recognition of its special economic rights and privileges. Even before the government officially entered the war, which it did in April 1917, Chinese laborers had been shipped to Europe to do heavy labor, and they did so in dangerous, unsanitary conditions. Manpower was all China had to offer by this point. By late 1918, there were nearly 100,000 in the French theater alone, and it's estimated that although China sent no combat, uh, combatants, it did send a total of roughly 140,000 laborers to France. Conditions were awful. So was the outcome. When Chinese delegates showed up at Versailles to participate in the post-war uh, peace treaty negotiations, they were shocked to learn that a secret deal had been struck a year earlier, guaranteeing the Japanese the rights to those German territories in return for naval assistance. Moreover, it turned out that equally unbeknownst to Chinese diplomats, the now-retired Duan Chidri uh, had negotiated his own secret agreement with Japan, which promised Tokyo, quote, the right to station police and to establish military gar garrisons in Jinang and Qingdao, and mortgage to Japan the total income from two new Shandong railroads the Japanese planned to develop, as partial payback of the huge loans floated to Beijing. It's been said that the China of the warlord eras was like medieval Europe, in which the government in Beijing was like the papacy at its nadir, at its lowest point, and the warlords were like the various kings of their various kingdoms, each controlling his own domain, and the man controlling Beijing acting as pope maker. On the other hand, China's instability and the sense of continuing crisis that it brought served to incubate radical, revolutionary thought. It was, in Spence's words, a period of political insecurity and unparalleled intellectual self-scrutiny and exploration. China refers to the hundred years or so from the Opium Wars to the defeat of Japan in 1945 as the century of humiliation. At least outside China, these bookends are often the best remembered events in that century, and they do perhaps have unparalleled symbolic value. However, 
the significance of the humiliation at Versailles should not be overlooked. The date, May 4th, on which the Chinese delegation abandoned its claims to the German concessions, saw mass protests around China. One of the biggest was at Tiananmen, where 3,000 mostly university students gathered before burning down the home of a Chinese minister, beating the ambassador to Japan, etc. The cabinet fell, and over the next year, students remained key investigators of anti-Japanese—excuse me, instigators of anti-Japanese boycotts. Violent skirmishes with Japan, uh, Japanese in China, and other civil unrest were also called caused by them. Anger was not confined to students, however. The newly formed unions struck uh, struck out. Uh, excuse me, struck. In other words, went on strike to express their general anger as well as specific labor and workplace complaints, for for instance. But the movement was largely led by intellectuals who called for democratic reforms and modernization in the context of anti-imperial nationalism. The protesters' moral victory set the tone for cultural politics throughout the 1920s and into the 30s. The personal and intellectual goals of the new culture movement were pursued along with, and sometimes in competition with, the national power goals of the May 4th movement. Nationalism, patriotism, progress, science, democracy, and freedom were the goals. Imperialism, feudalism, warlordism, autocracy, patriarchy, and blind adherence to tradition were the evils to be opposed. Intellectuals struggled now with how to be strong and modern, but still Chinese. Among the most influential of the intellectuals who became involved in the longer nationalist awakening and the uprising that became known as the May 4th movement were Chen Dushu, I'm sorry, I think it's, I think I've screwed up the pronunciation there. Uh, But anyway, he was the, Chen was the founder of the New Youth magazine and the Dean of Letters at Beijing University. And also Lu Shun, whose seminal Diary of a Madman, uh, one assumes that Ozzy Osbourne used this parable, um, anyway, uh, appeared in the May 1918 issue of New Youth. Both were fierce critics of Chinese tradition. Chen had studied in both France and Japan, and he was a strong proponent of Western democratic-style individual freedoms and rights. New Youth was also given the French title, La Jeunesse. Lucien had likewise spent time in Japan to study medicine, and was also well-versed in European, and especially Russian, literature. Parenthetically, it's worth pointing out that both Chen and Lu Xun uh, were, like many other Chinese intellectuals of the period, especially those with anti-government or reformist tendencies, who spent many years of voluntary or involuntary exile in Japan, learning from the successes of their former little Asian brother. And many of these men, like Sun Yat-sen, who was considered the sort of father of the nation, as I've said, uh, found this experience both troubling and inspiring. He urged his compatriots to understand, quote-unquote, the shame of not, not being Japanese. In any case, Patricia Ibri has written that uh, the May 4th movement, uh, in the May 4th movement, nationalism, Patriotism, progress, science, democracy, and freedom were the goals. Imperialism, feudalism, warlordism, autocracy, patriarchy, and blind adherence to tradition were the enemies. Uh, And that's a quote I used earlier. But it's fitting, then, that both Chen and Lu Xun were scathing in their critiques of those who sought a return to the shackles of the past, 
real or imagined. Chen, who was also the founder of the Chinese Communist Party in 1921, inaugurated New Youth with a devastating rejection of the Confucian deference to elders. He wrote, quote, Youth is like early spring, like the rising sun, like the trees and grass and bud, like a newly sharpened blade. He was encouraging his readers not to waste their time on the incorrigible elderly. He declared that instead of fusty, counterproductive, and often factually dubious traditionalism, what Chinese needed was Mr. Science and Mr. Democracy, by which he meant positive, rational thought in place of the classics, on the one hand, that would be Mr. Science, and a new system of morality along with political freedom, on the other, that would be Mr. Democracy. Lucian's Diary of a Madman was a brutal takedown of tradition. It's too good to summarize here. You should really read it. If you don't, at least understand that the piece ends, Save the Children. His most celebrated story, the 1921 true story of Ah Q, is masterful in itself, but also remarkable for the following embittered passage, which I'm going to read, quote from at length. Lucian wrote, China's ancient spiritual civilization has not been destroyed by the Republic after all. The Manchus have simply left the feast. That's the only difference from the past. Thus, even though today we can still see all manner of feasts, mixed grill as well as shark's fins, Chinese as well as Western. But under thatched roofs, plain rice is also served. Beggars eat scraps by the roadside, and in the country men are starving to death. The rich and mighty regale themselves regardless of expense while half-starved children are sold at eight coppers a pound. Our vaunted Chinese civilization is only a feast of human flesh, prepared for the rich and mighty. And China is only the kitchen where these feasts are prepared. Feasts of human flesh are still being spread even now, and many people want them to continue, to sweep away these man-eaters, overturn these feasts, and destroy this kitchen is the task of the young folk today. By 1919, New Youth had been joined by many other periodicals aimed at young people aspiring for a new China. Many such publications had the words new or young in their names. They covered a broad range of ideas, in other words, isms, imported from the West. Uh, Marxism, feminism, liberalism, anarchism, relativism, Ibsenism, utilitarianism, socialism, and so on. The key goal shared by these publications, and the thinkers who published their work therein, was national survival, which would be accomplished only through some sort of revolutionary enlightenment. Despite the turmoil caused by a political vacuum and the destruction caused by the foreign powers and domestic warlords, a modern economy began to take off in the early 20th century. China remained a largely agrarian, largely economically self-sufficient self -sufficient country, but a bourgeois mercantile and service economy had begun to grow in the cities as early as the 1840s, supported by and supporting the so-called comprador bourgeoisie of intermediaries between foreign and domestic firms, for example. In its dying days, the Qing Empire had attempted a kind of supervised developmentalist capitalism, the bureaucratic capitalism of officials, as Fairbank put it. But it was, in fact, the advent of World War I that allowed China's businesses and industries a chance to flourish, as it did for Japan simultaneously. Chambers of commerce had already been established in cities large and small, and after 1915, 
these chambers took over the running of cities, seeing to sanitation, education, and police. They also gave the growing Chinese middle class, especially the bourgeoisie, more of a voice in the direction of the economy. It's often suggested that the first post-war decade, uh, and excuse me, it's often suggested that first post-war Japan and then China achieved unprecedented sustained economic growth. However, Chinese growth in the early 20th century was equally impressive. The annual growth rate of Chinese industry between the founding of the Republic and the early 1920s was nearly 14%, for example. There were 22 Chinese textile mills in uh, 1911 and 109 in 1921. 49 cotton mills were built in the next year alone. China produced 13 million tons of coal in 1913, 20 million tons in 1919. Modern banking took off too. Between 1912 and 1923, the number of modern banks soared from seven to 131. By 1920, Shanghai alone was home to 71 Chinese banks, while Beijing remained primarily a political capital. Shanghai was on its way to becoming the cosmopolitan financial and economic capital of modern China. Telephone and electric companies were formed in cities and towns. Shanghai saw 200 or so new mechanical engineering workshops, about half powered by electricity, between, uh, and these were opened between 1912 and 1924. The city's metro population doubled from about 1.3 million in 1910 to 2.6 by 1927. This growing population worked in modern industries, shopped at modern department stores, uh, in the same way that urban populations in other growing East Asian cities, such as Tokyo, did. There was tension between business and government in these large cities. The capitalists attempted to keep the bureaucracy at arm's length and neutered. On the other hand, despite obvious labor management issues, Chinese capital was somewhat supportive of educational reforms, for instance, those advocated by the intellectuals of the May 4th movement. On the other hand, the pitiable state of Chinese overland transport infrastructure exemplifies the hardships of the period. As late as the mid-1920s, China had barely 5,200 miles of railway track, less than Britain at the time of the Opium Wars and this track was both concentrated in the north and often damaged by fighting. Roads were also few and in poor repair, meaning that what was carried over land was still often on the backs of coolies. As it had been in the late 19th century, the 1920s were an awful time climate-wise for China, especially in the northeast. At the start of the warlord era, in 1920, Bad harvests and drought caused famine in Zhili, Shandong, Shanxi, Shanxi, and Hunan. Relief agencies estimated that 40% of the population were destitute in some areas, and noted that many millions were living on sawdust, thistles, roots, tree bark, and flour made of ground stones and leaves. One district in Hubei had no rainfall for the whole of 1920 a hailstorm in 1921 that damaged spring crops, a frost in 1923 that had the same effect, and then heavy flooding. Across the country, famines are thought to have taken four to six million lives in 1921-1922. A third of farmers were believed to be in debt, paying interest that could reach 200%. 
and of course, even outside these famine-ravaged rural areas with no labor laws and rampant poverty. Industrialization and economic modernization benefited the few and caused suffering for the many, at least in the short run. Like industrial revolutions everywhere, China's exacted a terrible price on the poor, women, and children especially, even in Chinese-owned factories. In just eight years from the beginning of World War I, the number of looms in China's China's textile mills tripled from 4,800 to 19,000. And since conditions were as bad as they were in contemporary Japan or Britain a century or so earlier, the human cost was enormous and the potential for labor organization equally large. There were 50 major strikes in 1921 alone. 12-hour days, seven-day weeks, and widespread child labor were de rigueur, especially in the textile mills. In 1895, Japan won the right to open factories in China, and the other imperialist powers leaped at the chance to set up factories as well. Labor costs in China were very low. Foreign, especially Japanese, investment grew rapidly. The fact that many of the factories were foreign-owned added to management labor friction and did nothing to ameliorate anti-foreign sentiment. In 1920, of the 2.7 million or so cotton spinning machines in China, about half a million were Japanese-owned, and another nearly one million were owned by other foreign firms. As Ibri has pointed out, agitation against capitalist factory owners became more and more entangled with agitation against the unequal treaties and the privileges of foreigners in the treaty ports. The related appeal of Marxism had increased dramatically in the wake of the Bolshevik Revolution of 1917. The Marxist-Leninist take on communism was anti-Western and anti-imperialist in just the right measure for many. Furthermore, it offered the promise of escaping the Malthusian trap without becoming a vast global empire. Marxism was modern and claimed scientifically valid doctrines. It shared the prestige accorded by Chinese intellectuals to Western and advanced ideas even as its proponents opposed the dominant forms of economic and political organization in the West. A Western heresy to use against the West. It promised to undo China's humiliation. The Soviet Union then offered a model of immediate national strength. Chinese radicals felt all the more attracted to the Bolshevik model after the new Soviet Union publicly announced in 1920 its unilateral cancellation of the rights claimed by its imperial predecessors under the unequal treaties. The founding of the Chinese Communist Party in 1921, though it was clandestine, was a momentous moment that introduced a new kind of nationalism to China and that has played a key role in shaping the country ever since. The creation of the CCP was aided by the Soviet Union and by the Comintern, which both genuinely desired a revolution in China and wanted a strong neighbor to stand as a bulwark against Japanese expansion in Manchuria and Siberia. These were lands considered economically and politically integral to the Soviet Union. In this sense, China was to Russia somewhat like what Korea had been to Japan, a dagger pointed at its heart, a weak and failing state that had to be propped up for its own sake and for the sake of the great proletariat revolution, to be sure but also in the short run and medium run uh, for the interests of Soviet national security and the economic health of the Soviets in East Asia. This helps to explain why the Comintern also supported the nationalists, the 
obviously and openly anti-communist KMT under men like Sun Yat-sen and then Chiang Kai-shek. By 1925, there were about a thousand Russian military advisors in China helping the nationalists. It also goes a long way to explaining why the Comintern pushed the two rival factions together in 1922, though of course, for both sides, this was a marriage of convenience. The Entente, which was called the First United Front, was, quote, from the beginning a precarious thing, held together by the usefulness of each group to the other, by their common enemy, imperialism, and, while he lived, by Sun Yat-sen's predominance over the more anti-communist elements of his nationalist party. After all, many of the KMT leadership were rightfully concerned by the impending redistribution of their own assets threatened by the communists. Many of the nationalists' core supporters were landlords, industrialists, and others of the capitalist classes who had no sympathy for labor, the proletariat, and others of the hoi polloi. This is also by way of previewing why the communists eventually gained more popular support. After a decade of warlord-led anarchy and national decay, the purpose of the CCP-KMT United Front was the reunification of China. On May 30th, 1925, unarmed Chinese demonstrators were fired upon in Shanghai's foreign-run international settlement. Eleven of them died. Another 52 were killed, also by foreign troops, less than a month later, in a related pro uh, protest in Guangzhou. A massive boycott of British goods and trade with Hong Kong ensued after this May 30th, 30th incident, and it seemed that finally a chance had come to mobilize against both the warlords and the imperials. So it was that the two rival organizations, the uh, Kuomintang and the CCP, cooperated and competed in the 1920s to smash warlordism and roll back imperialism. Then their unity dissolved into protracted civil war that continued even during their ostensible second united front against Japan after 1937. When Sun Yat-sen died of cancer in March 1925, the United Front launched what's known as the Northern Expedition, a military campaign to rout the warlords and restore national unity by pushing northward, northward from the nationalist power base to Beijing. By the end of 1926, the Kuomintang held Guangdong, Hunan, Hubei, Shanxi, Fujian, Guangxi, and Guizhou, an area with a total population of 170 million. In 1927 and 1928, the combined forces of the communists and nationalists marched up the eastern seaboard from Canton to the capital. Along the way, they overcame 34 southern warlords and took Shanghai and Nanking, where a KMT-led government was established, before finally capturing Beijing. They were preceded by communist organizers who whipped up local support among workers and peasants, while also attempting not to alienate the more obvious Kuomintang allies. During this time, however, the fragile United Front was more or less unilaterally blown up by the new leader of the Kuomintang, Chiang Kai-shek. In April 1927, Chiang finally broke with the CCP completely by initiating a bloody campaign of suppression, first in Shanghai and then in other cities. Union and party headquarters were raided those who resisted were killed, and suspected communists were shot on sight. CCP cells were destroyed. Unions disbanded in a devastating sweep that left the urban CCP shattered. 
Chang blamed the communists for some earlier atrocities against foreigners along the way, using this as a pretense to consolidate his position. In the pre-dawn of April 12th, 2000, uh, to, in pre-dawn of April 12th, 2,000 armed militia allied with Chang spread out across the city. At daybreak, joined by Guomindang soldiers, they embarked on a spectacular assault on the leftist and communist allied forces in Shanghai. During what is known as the White Terror, men were shot and beheaded in the streets. There was a report that captives were thrown alive into the furnaces of locomotives in the South Railway Station, etc., though at least the last appears to have been in part the creative license of a French novelist. In any case, the purge spread beyond Shanghai. In Guangzhou, girls and boys were reported to have been beheaded for speaking out, while men were broken on the rack or hung up in cages to die of hunger and thirst. In Canton, real or suspected communists were roped together, taken to the parade ground, and shot. And that was just the beginning. Needless to say, hard feelings between the nationalists and communists persisted long after this reign of terror. I want to turn uh, away from this just for a moment to think a little bit about uh, women in particular. Uh, and it bears mention here that uh, overall, uh, being a really superficial outline of, of the history of East Asia, um, I have spent much less attention uh, on gender issues than either I would like to or should. Uh, and that's in part a mea culpa, but I, I also want to do something to uh, address that here. So I'm going to try to remedy this in small part by thinking about uh, important developments in the status of women during the first decades of the 20th century in China. In the context of modernizing, women's seclusion and tiny bound feet went from being a source of pride in Chinese refinement to a source of embarrassment at China's backwardness. As women gained access to modern education, first in missionary schools, but then also in the new government schools and abroad, they began to participate in politics. There were even a number of revolutionaries like Zhou Jin, who was executed for her trouble in 1907, but not before gaining a reputation as a warrior, poet, China's first feminist, and an all-around badass. There were also a few women warlords, perhaps the most colorful of whom were Mama Chao, as she was known in Shandong, and Tu Gun Chang in Anhui, or Anhui, excuse me. Schools for women, like the one at which Chou Jin taught in Shanghai, were <clears throat> becoming more and more common in this period. By 1910, 1.6 million students were enrolled in more than 40,000 girls' schools across China. By 1919, though schoolboys still outnumbered schoolgirls by a 7 to 1 ratio, it was 4.5 million girls studying in 134,000 schools. After 1920, the opportunities for women for higher education rapidly expanded and a growing number of women took up careers as teachers, nurses, and civil servants in China's cities. Change, as it often does, came more slowly in the countryside, where fewer than 2% of women were literate, even in the 1930s, compared to about 30% of men. One of the most interesting women of this period was Chiang Kai-shek's wife, known by a number of names, including Mei Ling Sung and Song Mei Ling. She was the daughter of a Chinese Methodist minister, and she had been educated at Wellesley College in Massachusetts in the United States. Uh, Wellesley is an all-women's institution, widely considered to be one of the most prestigious of uh, the all-women's uh, American colleges. 
There, Mayling majored in English literature, minored in philosophy, and garnered honors, including the college's highest academic distinction in her senior year. She married Chiang Kai-shek in 1927 after returning to China a decade earlier. Thereafter, uh, as her alma mater puts it, Madame Chiang Kai-shek was her husband's English translator, secretary, advisor, and an influential propagandist for the nationalist cause. She was thought by many to be the brains behind the Kuomintang, and was certainly the voice and face of the nationalists in the West, where her upbringing, her education, her religion, i.e. Christianity, and her eloquence, uh, and if we are going to be honest, her alluring oriental beauty made her an ideal spokesperson for Chiang Kai-shek's movement, especially since her generalissimo husband spoke no English. As Fenby remarked, over time, Mei Ling would become an increasingly prominent member of the Chiang regime, particularly for foreigners, whom she dazzled as the mysterious, sexy dragon lady with the advantage of speaking perfect English. Her obituary in the New York Times is an excellent summary of this view of Mei Ling. As a fluent English speaker, as a Christian, as a model of what many Americans hoped China to become, Madame Chang struck a chord with American audiences as she traveled across the country, starting in the 1930s, raising money and lobbying for support for her husband's government. She seemed to many Americans to be the very symbol of the modern, educated, pro-American China they yearned to see emerge, even as many Chinese dismissed her as a corrupt, power-hungry symbol of the past they wanted to escape. Meiling was, unfortunately, an apologist for the increasingly brutal and inept nationalists. Her husband was definitely not a progressive. He once famously argued, quote, can fascism save China? We answered yes. Fascism is now what China most needs. At least in his own mind, Chiang Kai-shek was a patriot, a man who wanted a strong, modern China, but also one militarized, disciplined, and obedient to his word and his will. When he inaugurated his New Life Movement in 1934, Chiang Kai-shek described its purpose as, quote, to militarize thoroughly the lives of the citizens of the entire nation, so they can cultivate courage and swiftness, the endurance of suffering, and a tolerance for hard work, and especially the habit and ability of unified action, so that they will at any time sacrifice for the nation. But the nationalists' modernizing programs failed to bring improvements to the countryside, and lost the support of city dwellers too. Nevertheless, Chiang Kai-shek slaughtered his way to defeat with Mei Ling as the international face and voice and fundraiser of the nationalist government. In 1943, Mei Ling became only the second woman ever and the first Chinese national to address a joint session of the U.S. Congress. Her speech was, not surprisingly, quite flattering to the U.S., which she called, quote, not only the cauldron of democracy, but the incubator of democratic principles. Her popularity in America, as well as her upbringing there, were part of the reason that she returned stateside after her husband's death in 1975. There, she remained internationally active. She published a number of books and received several honorary degrees. In addition, she was honorary chair of the American Bureau for Medical Aid to China, a patron of the International Red Cross Committee, honorary chair of the British United Aid to China Fund, and first honorary member of the Bill of Rights Commemorative Society. Through the late 1960s, she was included among America's 10 most admired women. She died in New York at the age of 105. Overall, beyond the extraordinary lives of a few extraordinary women, and beginning in the 1930s, the lives of better educated bourgeois women, 
the status of women in early 20th century China was relatively unchanged, unameliorated. For rural women, China's modernizing urban economy offered miserable and often deadly work in textile mills, brothels, and nominally better employment as household servants. In 1930 Shanghai, for example, more than 170,000 women were working in the mills and other industries. Another 50,000 or so each worked as prostitutes and servants. In the 1920s, the status of women was as little improved as their employment. Activists fought for changes in women's legal status in the 1920s without much success. Suffrage was impossible. Divorce tricky. As Song Qingling, who was Mei Ling's older sister, Sun Yat-sen's wife, and a formidable woman in her own right, uh, as she put it, quote, if we do not grant the appeals of the women, they lose faith in the union and in the women's freedom we are teaching. But if we grant the divorces, then we have trouble with the peasants' union, since it is very hard for a peasant to get a wife, and he has often paid much for his present unwilling one. Still, in 1930, the Kuomintang did issue a new civil code that made significant status changes for women. They were allowed to select their own spouses, to refuse arranged marriages, to inherit property, and to initiate divorces. A labor law the following year guaranteed equal pay for equal work. Still, for women outside the educated city-dweller class, these legal amendments brought little or no change on the ground. No campaign was undertaken to spread knowledge of the provisions of the new marriage laws in the countryside, and getting them observed in rural areas was never given any priority. Surveys of rural villages in the 30s and 40s found not only that arranged marriage and inheritance by sons continued, but that few people even knew that the laws had changed. In 1927, China was nominally united under the KMT, but the Nationalist Party itself was hardly united. It was composed of so many disparate elements that it was unable to function as a party dictatorship. Though Chiang Kai-shek's victory pleased all the foreign powers except Japan, with who had interests in the stability of China, he was facing civil war with the communists, escalating aggression by the Japanese Kwantung army, and, of course, internal rifts within the Kuomintang. In other words, it was bad enough that the so-called white terror which he had instigated in Shanghai on the 12th of April in 1927 began a violent power struggle between left and right that would take millions of lives in 22 years of national dislocation. But that barely scratched the surface of the problems that lay ahead. The reunification, reunification of uh, the country after 15 years was not a solution, but only an inflection point in a longer saga of chaos and violence.